I invite uh, you all to turn to Titus, the book of Titus. As you do, let me just thank you for your singing. I love the, the, the words in that last song we sang, uh, part of one of the verses, words of power that will never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. God really used that in my heart this morning. Thank you for singing that truth. Words of power that will never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. I think one of the ways God's word is sometimes limited is by our lack of faith in them. And so uh, singing together is not only an act of worship to God, it's a way we stir one another up to love and good works. And so thank you for uh, singing that and singing that with full intent and purpose today. Uh, well, last week, uh, we, I attempted to do an overview of the book of Titus. Um, now, you have to remember something about before last week's sermon, and that was I had taken a month off of preaching before that. Uh, and when I practiced it, it did take 30 minutes. Sometimes I'll work through it at my desk. It took 30 minutes. In real life, though, somehow it took 48 minutes. Uh, so I just want to, you know, apologize in some senses before you here today. I think I told you everything I know about the themes of sound doctrine, godliness, and good works. I mentioned uh, a lot about immorality, idolatry, and deceit on the island of Crete. I even gave you uh, more information about the topography of the island of Crete than you probably care to know. Um, As a matter of fact, I had some very nice people come to me this past week and kindly suggested that if we might actually want to start our services earlier, uh, a bit earlier during the the Sunday morning day, if the service is normally going to go that long. So... um, Thankful for that. Uh, It's not my normal pattern to preach three chapters uh, in one sermon. Uh, As a matter of fact, today we're going to slow the pace down and we're going to narrow the focus to four verses. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And as we look at them, we'll have the modest goal, uh, modest goals of seeking to understand what Paul says to Titus and then looking at how we can apply it to our lives. In the introduction to the book, or the salutation, Paul uh, starts with a personal greeting chock full of important things, verses 1 through 4. It's the second longest introduction in all of Paul's letters. Uh, I will let you find out the first one later on. Okay, don't don't, uh, look for it through the whole sermon. You can look for that all this week. Uh, Second longest introduction. Introduction. It's far longer than the other pastoral epistles, 1st or 2nd Timothy. Four verses here of an introduction. And here, Paul has significant things to say about Paul, about Titus, and about God. Okay, so that'll be my simple outline tonight, today. Significant things about Paul, Titus, and God. Now, when Paul writes his salutation to Titus, he gives the most attention to himself. He gives three verses of the four to himself. Half verse for Titus, and then he's got some things to say about God at the end of the passage. Now, I think we could stop and ask ourselves why. Why would Paul have so much to say about himself in a small introduction like this? And I think the key is found in his actual description of Titus. If you're looking down in verse 4, you see that he describes Titus as uh, his true child in a common faith. 
I think the reason Paul has so much to say about himself is he wants Titus to emulate the steps that he has made as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wants Titus to follow his steps as he follows Christ. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, and one of the things that happens in the country of western Pennsylvania is if you are a boy, a young man, one of the things you will do is you'll hunt. And uh, I remember many of the first days of buck season. It was a great time in western Pennsylvania to be a young man. Uh, However, there are a few things I didn't really care for about first day of buck season. One was it was always bitterly cold uh, the first day of buck season. And uh, the other thing I, I still to this day don't care for is the ungodly hour at which you have to get up to beat the deer into the woods. Uh, to make it even harder, in our family, uh, we lived over an hour away from the hunting place that we would go and hunt. And so I remember my dad getting me up, you know, pulling me out of bed at three or four in the morning. And, you know, and then we, we get there. And I remember one particular occasion going with my father. He would always walk me to the place where I'd be sitting for the rest of the day, you know, in the frigid subarctic temperature. And as I was going there, as we were making our way there, we had a really difficult time making it because there was fresh snowfall. It was very deep. Uh, we finally made it in the four-wheel drive truck of my father, and we got out, and you know, you're fully clothed, you got all this, all these layer upon layer upon layer of hunting gear and warmth, and you have these boots, you know, large boots, and I remember he's, he's starting to walk me to my place, and my place was on the top of a high hill. And as we're starting to walk up the hill, I was really struggling making any progress because the snow wasn't packed. And I I really uh, had difficulty doing that until I noticed that my father's steps uh, had already paved or pushed or packed the snow down. And so when when I actually followed in his steps and put my steps within his footprints, things became much easier. As I think of the introduction, I think that's why Paul is saying so much about himself for Titus, his true child in a common faith. He wants him to follow his example, and I think it'd be good for each one of us, as far as we can, by God's grace, to follow his example too. And so it starts with some significant things about Paul, verses 1 through 3. Danny Aiken says the following about Paul in this passage. He says, it's a fortunate man who knows who he is and why he's here. Such a man was Paul the Apostle. Such a man was Paul the Apostle. In in this passage, Paul starts by characterizing himself in two ways. He identifies himself in verse 1 in two ways, two descriptions, two self-descriptions. We've seen before, perhaps if you studied the Bible, uh, these two self-descriptions reveal very important things about Paul and his priorities. He is, first, he is a servant of God. Here the word servant is doulos, and it's normally translated slave. In the first century. This is a common word in the first century. It described a common condition among the people. I was reading this past week and noted that one scholar says that over 90% of people who lived in city centers were slaves in the first century. Common word, common description. In the ancient world, although slaves had no freedom or rights, much of their slavery did not include some of the harsh physical abuse that is often true of other forms of slavery throughout time. But having said this, Paul 
knew that he was a form, formerly a slave to sin, but that through the Spirit of God, he was bought back through the blood of Jesus Christ so that he could be a slave to God. And as he mentions this theme in the New Testament, this is not something he bears grudgingly. This is something he rejoices in. He is slave of God. To that he adds, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Now, this is the second way he identifies himself. Second self-description. Apostle means sent one. He was chosen by God to be a special designee of Jesus. Sent to bear his name to both Jew and Gentile. He's also qualified as one of the original apostles. Because as he'll explain in 1 Corinthians 9, for instance, he bears all the marks of being a genuine apostle. He had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus in a heavenly vision. He was sent by God as an apostle, and he was sealed by the fruit of his apostolic labor, the Corinthian believers themselves in that passage. And so uh, Paul starts with this description. He is a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and to this basic self-description, he adds two very important purposes, I believe, for his apostleship, or could be for his slavery to God and his apostleship for Jesus Christ. In other words, if you ask Paul, what intended purposes does God have or did God have in setting you as an apostle? What was God attempting to accomplish by designating you as an apostle? He would answer it in these two ways. And that's the rest of verse 1. It's pretty easy to see in most Bible translations. Look at middle of verse 1. For the sake of the faith of God, God's elect. And then implied here, and for word for is implied and for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. These are the two intended purposes of Paul's apostleship, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and for their knowledge of the truth. Now, this would be why or the purposes God had in calling him as an apostle. Now, normally, Paul, when describing his apostleship, at the beginning of these letters, will say something about its source. As I was comparing this to other introductions, it's normally, my apostleship is from God, or by the will of God. But here he wants to emphasize with Titus something different, the purposes. The first answer is, for the faith of God's elect. This could be translated, Paul, an apostle, for the purpose of helping God's elect people to believe purpose of helping God's elect people to believe. Now, the concept of God's elect or chosen people is not a foreign concept to the scriptures. It starts in the Old Testament with the Israelite people. They're God's chosen or elected people. And it continues in the New Testament. This language continues, and it's used not only of Israel. I think it continues to be used of them as the chosen people of God as a nation. But it's also used of the church, the assembly of believers in the name of Jesus Christ. And so, As the church, we are part of God's chosen people, called out by God for salvation. Now, when you start talking about election, uh, things can get a little challenging, right? But, But let me just point out a few basic things to you about it here. First, in this passage, it seems that Paul is teaching 
that the election of the people to whom he served occurred before they came to faith. Can you see that there in the way this reads? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. They're already God's elect. Paul's ministering for the sake of their faith, that they would believe. Other scriptures, I think, give clear testimony to the idea that believers in Jesus Christ are those chosen or elected by God before their salvation. Consider a few passages. Let me just read them to you. 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. It's actually just over a page or two. You can see it there, but 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Very similar. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul identifies the elect. It's not a term that he's afraid to describe. He uses it over and over again. And he says the elect are part of his motivation for serving and ministering in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10. And he ministers that they might actually obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's why he ministers. I think as well of of a similar passage in Acts 13, verse 48. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. But in Acts 13, verse 48, about some Gentile people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in a, in a city called Pisidian Antioch, Luke says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Ever read that passage in Scripture? I think that's a faithful translation of the Greek before this, behind this, that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, and this implies that before their belief, they were appointed. Or in other texts, they were elected or chosen. Now, other passages help us, I think, take it back even farther. It's before their salvation or belief, but this is actually some, something done by God in eternity past, before the dawn of time. Uh, let me read Ephesians 1, verse 4 to you. Okay, Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as he, that's God, chose us, the Ephesian believers, even as, God, even as he chose us in him, that's Jesus. So, okay, so it's loaded, right? Verse Four of Ephesians chapter 1, even as God chose us, believers, in Jesus. Now listen to what he says. Before the foundation of the world. That's kind of setting the time of God's election. Before the creation or the beginning of this world, God chose us in Jesus. Also in the book of Revelation, you could read, and John twice uses that phrase, foundation of the world, to describe those who, whose name have been written in the book of life since before the foundation of the world. Now back in our text, Paul understands the ones saved through his ministry are those God has already chosen. Men and women, I think, as far as I can understand, this is what the Bible teaches. And what is left for us to do is to sweetly believe and hold to what the Bible teaches about God choosing. 
Paul's point in the salutation, though, in Titus chapter 1, is not to give a full soteriology. Instead, he uses these words to identify those who have come to faith because of his servile work as a slave of God and an apostle. He serves to arouse faith in those whom God has chosen. That's the first purpose. Now, the second one is for the knowledge of truth that accords with godliness. He not only serves for the faith of God's people, but for their knowledge of the truth. Truth here is the content of what believers are to know. That is, Paul gives himself as an apostle so that the elect might come to a good or sound knowledge of the truth. Okay, now, sometimes as you're reading the Bible and you come across the words, the truth, it's, it's, it's right to... Uh, you, you, could, you, could, uh, you could input the equivalent, the gospel. The gospel is the truth. And there are passages of Scripture that clearly do that. The truth is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The truth is the word of God. But, but here he tells us exactly what truth he's talking about. He appends to this statement a precise explanation of what truth he has in mind. It's the truth that accords with godliness. You see that in your Bible? And that's an important phrase. Okay? Paul ministers, one of the purposes of him serving as an apostle, that's why he goes through all the beatings, all the different trials, all the difficulties, is so that the faith, that, so that the elect would believe and that they would grow in a knowledge of truth that produces godliness. I think with this statement, we get a bit more of Paul's undergirding theology. The distinction of the truth to which he's working with is that it produces, folks. It produces. It changes lives. That's the distinctive nature of the Christian truth. It changes people. It produces godliness in their lives. That's how you know that someone's coming to grasp a knowledge of the true or genuine truth changes their lives. Now, we've all likely observed people who enjoy theology and doctrine discussions intellectually. Okay, but sometimes their lives, uh, in their lives, they are mentally stimulated theologically, but they're practically barren when it comes to fruit. Having served at a Bible college for 11 years, in my younger years, I would occasionally get involved in very elaborate theological discussions with a young man or a young woman I was really concerned about. And over time, time has revealed that not every person who goes to Bible college is a believer in Jesus, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Not every person attending a church like Colonial Baptist Church is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And in these particular cases, they love to talk theology. But their life was missing practical truth. The distinctive of Christian truth is that it changes lives. It produces. Last week we considered that this is a driving theme of the book. Paul wants Titus to cultivate sound doctrine and its fruit. Its fruits are godliness and good works. These goals 
are the goals of Paul's apostleship. And so Paul serves for faith and for growing knowledge of godly truth, yet he's not quite done. You look in verses 2 and 3, and uh, I would just describe what he does in verses 2 and 3 is he tells us more of the stunning, gracious nature of his ministry. Look at verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Here, Paul's description or self-description starts or continues here with an expression. The phrase is, in hope of eternal life. And can I tell you how much that phrase has challenged me in the last two weeks? Maybe even longer. In the hope of eternal life. And why is it just appended at the beginning of verse 2? What, what is Paul's point? What's he trying to get across here? And to be honest with you, that first word in, that little preposition, is challenging to translate. And uh, so um, I think we can learn, though, more of Paul's circumstances or the circumstances of his apostleship here. Paul's apostleship is such that it involves somehow, for him, the hope of eternal life. Now, what I found this week was a parallel passage where Paul uses this in the hope of eternal life in a similar way. You can just write it down, and I'll read it to you. Or, sorry, I won't read it to you this week. You read it yourself this week. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 10, he uses this phrase, in hope of, and then he puts something future in his place. In 1 Corinthians 9, 10, Paul explains that the way a thresher, a person who reaps or harvests, the way a thresher threshes is in hope of sharing the crop. So you got this, this guy going along, reaping the harvest. And he does so with a certain perspective. Okay, a certain cause of him doing this, and that is he does it in hope of sharing in the crop. So the very way Paul goes about his apostleship is in the hope of something too. Not the hope of crop, but the hope of God's eternal life that he's given to him. So this hope then forms a reason for Paul's commitment to serve as a slave and an apostle. If you were to ask Paul why he serves as an apostle amidst of all the challenges in this text, he would say because of the hope of eternal life. But then he expounds a little bit more on the hope and what we can learn about this hope, of course, and I know you've probably heard preaching or teaching on this before, is this hope is sure. Okay? Sometimes when we use the English word, it's in an area where we have no certainty. You know, someone's going through a very challenging time, and we hope things get better for them, or they hope things will get better, but there's no certainty that it will. Well, the word behind this word hope in Greek is speaking of a certainty. Something is sure to happen. I think of uh, Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 that describes our hope as something that does not put us to shame. It will not shame you. That is, it's sure. Matter of fact, our hope is so sure that as Christians, it changes the way we mourn the loss of people that we love. 
We don't have to mourn like those who have, that don't have the certainty. It changes the way we mourn. But in our text, it's sure, this hope is sure, because, Paul says, God who can never lie. You know, the Cretans, they were liars. But God who can never lie promised this hope, promised it would occur. In other words, God's faithfulness secures the promises that he's made. Yet he reveals two other things about this promise or this, this hope of eternal life and how God relates to it. There are two verbs here that describe how God's relate, God relates to this hope of eternal life. You see, the first one is God promised it. In particular, the text says God promised it and could be translated before the eternal ages or in the eternal ages. In other words, before time ever began, God made a promise. And the promise is the hope of eternal life, the surety of eternal life to those who would be followers of Jesus. Then secondly, what we see is not only did God do that before the ages, the text says in the present time, or I'm sorry, at at the proper time, God did something else. God not only promised eternal life before the ages, he disclosed that or revealed that promise of eternal life at the proper time through the preaching of Paul the Apostle. Through the preaching of Paul the Apostle. God had given him a command to proclaim the gospel, and so God discloses this eternal life or the hope of eternal life at the proper time through the preaching of Paul the Apostle. So God is intricately connected with the hope of eternal life. He promised it in eternal ages, and he commanded that it be made manifest at the proper time through the preaching of Paul the Apostle. That's what Paul says about himself. Now, let's look at what he says about Titus, verse 4. Some significant things about him, or one here. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Uh, here in this passage, he calls Titus his true or genuine child. I think it's likely that Paul was instrumental in bringing the gospel originally to Titus. You are my true or genuine child in a common faith. Now they are brothers in Christ, and they share the same faith that has Jesus as its subject and its goal. Again, I think Paul's concerned for Titus, his true child, that he would follow him in this common faith. To that, he adds some substantial things about God at the end of verse 4. And this is the actual greeting part. Grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. At the end of verse 4, Paul wishes Titus to experience grace. Okay, and, uh, In Awana, I learned as a sparky that grace is God's unmerited favor or kindness to sinners. Okay, and I think that that holds true throughout the New Testament. God's favor is unmerited, unsolicited kindness to people, and peace, that's well-being, reconciliation with God and other believers. For Titus to be able to withstand the harsh Cretan environment, Cretan environment with 
lying and immorality and idolatry and false teaching, false living coming out of the Cretan churches, Paul knows that God must be his source of strength and provision. And so Paul connects his best wishes for Titus to the ones who will make it happen. God the Father, Jesus Christ, our Savior. These are the ones that will bring grace and peace for Titus. This opening paragraph, God is seen doing a lot more than just the end. I don't know if you noticed this. God is the one whom Paul serves. God is the one who elected believer. They're believers. They're God's elect. God is the one who promised eternal life before time began. God is the one who gave the command to Paul the Apostle at the present time to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God is the one now who can show favor and establish Titus's well-being as he ministers on Crete. These are substantial things about God. And I think they remind each one of us of our own need to rest in his sufficiency and well-being. We tend to focus on our own sufficiency. We put the emphasis on what we can do. That's just human nature. But this passage reminds us all along that it's God. It's God's grace. It's his peace that we need and will sustain us. Paul knew what Titus needs. And it is God at work on his behalf. Who knows what hardships Titus faced when he read this the first time. Also reflect on this congregation. Perhaps only you know the hardships you face right now. Actually, in the last week, I've received phone call and email, one after another after another, of both members and guests who are going through very challenging times. Perhaps not many people know what challenging things you're facing right now. Might I remember, you were serving the same God as the Apostle Paul. This God chose you before the foundation of the world. This God made you a promise in the eternal ages before the dawn of time that involved eternal life. And this God is your true source of favor and peace. Won't you take a moment this morning before the rush of the day to commit to follow in Paul's footsteps as your God gives you the strength to do so. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm mindful, my brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us, we we know we need your grace and peace for salvation. We were sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. We had no hope in our own. The only thing that could save us was grace. The appearance of God's grace to bring salvation for us. And yet in our Christian life, sometimes we forget that our greatest needs in the Christian experience are also now grace 
from you. And the peace that only you can give. So I intercede now for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of which who are passing through very significant trials. Difficulties. And they experience one anxiety and trial after another. Lord, I would wish for them what Paul wishes for Titus. Grace and peace from God my Father. Christ Jesus, my Savior. I pray that they would see that the only way we experience well-being is through your provision. And I pray that as you provide that for them today and throughout the course of this week, that they would follow Paul's steps. That they'd be concerned to minister so that people would come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that they would use their gifts in our church so that people would grow in a knowledge of truth that accords with godliness. Lord, may they do so, all of this, because of the hope of eternal life that is ours and will be our full possession when we see Jesus someday. Lord, thank you for this and pray that you would do these significant works in our life as we follow Paul's footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen.